Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question while providing real solutions for biblical world and life view. Your host is Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor and founder of the Chalcedon Teacher Training Institute. Thanks for joining me for this edition of the Out of the Question podcast. Now, some of you know me, but others may not know that I am a doctor's daughter. I grew up in the 50s and 60s, and interestingly enough, it wasn't a big deal with those I went to school with that my father was a doctor. It was the sort of thing that, oh, your father does this, your father does that. So I never had this over sense of myself because my dad was a doctor. In fact, my mother gave me, her advice was, whatever you do, don't marry a doctor. Because my dad was a general practitioner, he was prone to get up in the middle of the night and make house calls, and she wasn't all that fond of being disturbed at night. But needless to say, I got to see firsthand what a, for lack of a better expression, an old-time, old-fashioned doctor was about. And I think a lot of people are unfamiliar with how medicine was practiced before the age of insurance and health departments making decisions that really should be decisions in terms of individual patients. And so I thought it would be interesting to bring an old-time doctor on board to talk with us today. And I'm pleased to introduce you to Dr. Larry Binaldi, who I have known for a number of years. And he fits the category of someone who knows the difference between how medicine used to be practiced and how it's being practiced now. So Dr. Larry, thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you for having me, Andrea. And as I listen to your, your very interesting and sometimes humorous uh, introduction, I realize that I probably will be a, a transitional kind of voice because I definitely was trained by th that generation. And at times in my own practice, I tried to practice it with those principles and with that foundation. But even early on, I saw some of the new components of what was influencing our profession. But yet I, I definitely saw it in those who trained me and in my training and, and at times in my own practice. And some of the challenges I had was to sort of merge those with the reality of the world I, you know, I was in now. Now, one of the things my dad, now my dad was born in 1911. He served in World War II as a physician, came back and opened a practice in the neighborhood he had grown up in and died at the ripe old age of 98 years old. Wow. Well, one of the things he really did not like was how over-specialized he thought medicine had become. So for example, if somebody had a blister or somebody had a splinter and went to a doctor, if this doctor happened to specialize in ear, nose, and throat, it was like, oh, no, no, that's not my specialty. You need to go see someone else. And my father would say, it's just a splinter. It's just a blister. He should know how to deal with that. What's your take on how medicine has become over-specialized? That's a very good point. And I think I was among the, the last generation of doctors who actually practiced, tried to practice more uh, in, a, in a broader way, although I think I had more restrictions than your dad did. Uh, I was born in 19, December of 1948, and I graduated from medical school at the University of Michigan 
1974, did my three years of internal medicine residency in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and started my medical practice in 1977 here in California. As far as looking at one aspect of it, I always was uh, attracted towards a generalist approach. Uh, for a while, I thought I might do family medicine. And family medicine as a, as a specialty began around the time I was in, my, in medical school and in my residency in the early to mid-70s. Before that, uh, you would just be a general practitioner if you practice primary care. But somewhere in the early 70s, as I recall, they actually started doing a residency, which is the, the number of years, usually two or three, after medical school and before you actually go out to practice. And so in, in, in your dad's days, they would have the four years of medical school, and then they do one year of, of internship. And a high percentage of doctors at, in those days would be what are considered to be general practitioners. And they would then go out and start practicing medicine. And when you're in a, a special, especially training program, general practice became quote unquote family medicine. Although there are still doctors who do general practice. They're, they're a smaller dying breed, but there still are some. They do it more effectively, I think, in rural areas. But with the residency, you're in a three-year program after medical school. And that, that formalizes a little more. And family medicine started being a residency around the time I was finishing. I opted to go into, into internal medicine because I enjoyed that, those challenges a bit more. But I chose to do general internal medicine, not to go on to a specialty per se. So I was sort of a second generation of those general practitioners like your dad. And I always respected them. And when I started my practice, there were many doctors in their mid to late 60s at the, at the time when I was a young doctor who were just the old time general practitioners. And I, I always respected them and they were wise and smart and had a lot of experience. And I tried to learn from them as well as I, as I worked with them side by side in the hospital. But as I practiced and came out of internal medicine, it was sort of a specialty, but I decided, you know, I, like many others, was a general internal medicine. So I also did primary care. And it seems like even, even the wording change is changing now, Andrea. Before, they'd be, a physician would be more likely be referred to as your family doctor or general practitioner. Now it's kind of um, become a little more technical. Primary care. Nothing wrong with that, but just like language affects so many other things, you know, we can look at culture and politics. In, in some areas, primary care can be practiced by a nurse practitioner, for example, a nurse who then goes and does a couple of extra years of study and is kind of like an adjunct to a doctor or a physician's assistant. So even changing the terminology, now calling it more often primary care as, as opposed to, you know, your, your family doctor or your, your, your general practitioner. But I did that. And in the early years, actually, as your dad had, I'm sure, experience doing, uh, delivering babies, et cetera, et cetera. One, one area that became change right away, especially if you worked in a urban area like this area, it was very rare to deliver babies any longer. Some did, but that pretty much changed. Whereas when your dad came out, it was very, very common for non-gynecologists and obstetricians to deliver babies. By the time I, was, I finished in 1977, it was a real rarity. So that was one part. And, and we felt comfortable not doing that because we didn't have as much training. But that was, that's one aspect that was taken away. For the first three to five years after I started practicing until the early 1980s, I would do procedures that I know there's no way I would I, I can do any longer or that younger doctors would do. I would do lumbar punctures, you know, quote unquote, the spinal taps. I would even do thoracentesis, which is draining fluid out of someone's lungs if they had what, what are called pleural effusions. That's unheard of now 
in, in terms of in terms of the doctors coming out to practice. So I could see that changing. It was kind of step by step as more specialists came into the areas. And then you had to look at, well, could you do it as well as that doctor? And I had, I'd have to admit, honestly, no, I couldn't. If there was a neurologist who did lumbar puncture spinal taps every day, essentially, or a couple a day, I could not uh, claim the same competence if I did one once a week or twice a month and that type of thing. So I could see that changing. And pretty much by the mid-80s or so, at least in a, in a, in a relatively urban, suburban area, that had already changed. And so I, you know, I, I saw that. Okay. So let me ask you a question here. It's probably not unusual. My dad, who was used to doing things a particular way, would designate the change as being non-optimum. And you describing yourself as a transition doctor, overall, do you think specialization was about more competent patient care, that there was all sorts of problems, so now we had to specialize? Or was it something driven by something else, like insurance companies and how insurance companies wanted medicine to be practiced? At that point, as I recall, I think it was driven more by the competence and experience of the physician physician who did the procedure. And at that point, though, and this is something that's changed, I'll get to that in just a moment, hopefully. At that point, I, as the general internist or the physician for that patient, if the neurologist came in at lumbar puncture or a lung specialist came in and removed some fluid from the lungs, I would still be seeing that patient every day in the hospital and still be, and I would understand what was done. I could, I could understand the analysis of it. And that I think was a step in the right direction. What started happening 15 years later or so was the subsequent development of hospitalists which are specialized doctors who just do hospital work. And so, for example, when I, I started my medical practice in 1977, pretty much up until 2000 or so, until the late 90s, let's say, let's say 20 years, it was expected that if one of my patients became ill with some type of problem, I would follow that patient in the hospital. And if they ended up having specialized care, they needed to have a cardiac procedure or whatever, I'd still be looking in on a patient following and if they needed to be followed primarily by the cardiologist for a while, I would still check in occasionally and see how they were doing. So there was still a real con- continuity at that point. The concept of a hospitalist, as I understand it, actually started in Great Britain. And that started with their national health system, oh boy, probably sometime after World War II. And I would hear about that and read about it as a young doctor. And I wouldn't like that concept very much. And then it started occurring in the United States probably started in the late 70s, early 80s in university centers. It started hitting the community a little more widely in the mid to late 90s. And by early 2000s, it was widespread. I had mixed feelings about that as well, too. At that point, you're getting older. It's harder to get up at three o'clock in the morning, and go in and admit a patient. And so as your mom sort of, I sort of chuckled uh, in the background when you, when you gave your mom's advice. And my wife has probably said things like that as well at, point, at some point. Because it does have its, its, its major toll upon the family. And it's very, very difficult to have a, a sort of a normal family life. And I was also at that point approaching my late 50s, early 60s. And so part of me regretted it. It really did. Because I knew I was going to be losing some kind of contact and also some experiences. But I also realized I was physically not what I used to be. I was getting older. And so there's, I have mixed feelings about that too. Overall, however, I, I still am not quite sure the benefit, you lose something, you you definitely do. So let me ask you this. 
So you said you lose something. Now, again, I grew up with a doctor in the house, so that I don't remember going to the doctor because he was right there. And oftentimes <laughs> the joke was they didn't know I needed to wear glasses until I was in third grade because he would always write on the health form 2020 vision, right? Until eventually, I think one of the teachers said, you should check her vision. I don't think she sees very well. So there's also the maybe the lack of intensity of making sure all the children's visits were there. But there's something to be said for knowing your patient. If somebody has 10 specialists and those 10 specialists don't talk to each other, they might miss the fact that this person might be a worry ward or a bit of a hypochondriac or somebody who reads about an illness and is then sure that she has it. So do you think that part of what you said was missing was really knowing the person more than just a bunch of physical symptoms? At that point, no, because I still had my office practice and I was still always trying to talk to my patients, et cetera. I found that as I was doing less and less hospital work, because I still had my office practice, I still could understand them and, and bind, with, bond with them. And, and I could pass it on to this, you know, the doctor admitting the patient, you know, he could stop in and make a quick social round, so to speak, and look at them. But if you still bonded with your patients and could spend the proper time and get to know them in the office, it could make up for that to some degree. What, what I was primarily referring, what I was also well, probably primarily referring to was maybe the potential loss of skills. However, I had done it long enough that I really didn't lose a lot of the understanding of what they were going through, et cetera. And I, I think that's maybe it's sort of a technical thing, kind of an inside baseball aspect of, you know, the skills of examination, of experience, of understanding, you know, the disease, disease processes of treatment, what the patient goes through. I was referring to that to some degree, because I don't think the physicians are as balanced or experienced if they do almost no hospital work any longer. The second problem, though, is with the stress of time constraints and insurances, I think it's harder and harder for them to really spend the time to talk to patients as much as they'd like, get to know them and the family as much as they'd like. So I see the modern day physician potentially being pulled at both ends. They're losing a whole area of experience, the hospital work. And they're also feeling more pressure to sort of churn out the numbers and not get to know the patients. And that's, I think, a com combined dilemma there. What happens? Okay, so you have a general practice, you still have patients you see, and now the patient has a specialist. Is there within, I mean, realistically, and how it actually plays out, who ends up then making the decision for the patients in terms of if you're the primary care, which it's called now, if you think a specialist is recommending something that you don't think is particularly good for this patient, how did it used to be resolved and how is it resolved now? That's a good question. I've changed my own focus as well in 2010. And since 2012, I've done exclusively hospice care and more recently hospice care in the hospital. So I have some awareness of that. That partly depends upon the personality of the primary care physician. If they're interested enough, if they have enough desire, they can still be in touch with the specialist and strongly influence you know, decisions on, for example, ethical decisions, should that be treated, should not be treated, or should the patient have that procedure or not? So that, that can still be done. And, and you know, that depends upon the interaction, the personality of the specialist and primary care doctor. That might be, might be potentially limited 
with time because the pressure, the time pressures also might give you less time to talk on a telephone with your consultants, et cetera. But it still can be done. And I think a good, a good specialist, if not for ethical reasons, for legal reasons, though, would still want to contact the primary care doctor and let him or her know what the decision is and get, get their feedback. So I'm not sure that's changed a lot. It just might be harder to maintain. But I think, I think it's still, from what I see in the hospital right now, because I'm in a hospital doing hospice work, but many of our patients come from referrals from the, from the, you know, the, the primary care doctors or the hospitalists and interacting with the specialists. So I still see that going on. And there still is a good communication between the hospitalist and the specialist. And a good hospitalist would then pass that information on to the primary care doctor. I think in the hospital, part of the problem would be the character and the motivation, the personality of the hospitalist and how well he or she communicates with the primary care doctor. I have both concerns and also encouragement. I, working with a lot of the current hospitalists, I find that they're, you know, they vary in terms of their motivation, their compassion, their abilities to communicate. But a lot of them are to do it, do it to a better degree than I sort of thought before I got to know a lot of hospitalists personally. So part of me is still somewhat encouraged by that, that there's enough, you know, young doctors who go above and beyond to do that communication, spend time with the family, etc. And ironically, ironically, some of these are foreign trained uh, physicians. So my sort of my initial bias was, oh my gosh, all these foreign trained physicians, what's going to happen? We're going to lose this or that. Uh, not necessarily. So I actually am somewhat encouraged by that, that there still is this ideal of care, wanting to care about patients, wanting to do the right thing, that enough young physicians still are driven by that, that despite the changes in the system, something in the core of what it is to be a good doctor still is maintained, even from a non-Christian perspective per se, although many, many of these doctors that I'm impressed with are young Indian doctors, and their system is the British educational system because their medical schools are completely based upon the British model. And I would assume that, you know, when those models were established, that the British model was based somewhat upon a Christian value system. It's almost as if the Lord is still providing some, you know, some hope for some of us older docs, that it's not all negative by any means. Okay, so you brought up your Christian faith, and from an insider's point of view, you probably have a lot to share in terms of where you work and how you worked, the degree to which you're able to share your faith. But I know that when my dad was in private practice, because he thought as a Catholic doctor that birth control was wrong, he would not prescribe it. And he would tell his patients that regardless of what their beliefs were, that his beliefs were such that he couldn't do it in good conscience. How much is a doctor's conscience able to be used for his own benefit and the benefit of his patients today? Great question. I'm not sure I have an easy answer. It still can be used. And I have to give some reflection on this because this is a great question. Well, let me give you an example. Maybe that will Go make ahead. it easier. So you're a Christian physician and you are interested not only in the physical well-being, but the mental, emotional, and spiritual. And you have a patient who is confused as to whether or not how 
he has designated himself all these years is who he really is. And he's contemplating to make some major physical changes to go in line with things. Now, I realize probably in hospice care, you don't deal with that that much, but I imagine for a Christian doctor, issues like that, issues like abortion will impact how they relate to their patients. And I guess my question is, is it possible to openly be a Christian doctor in today's medical system? I think it can be with a lot of stress upon how you present your thoughts. I did have some patients who, not so much a transgender issue, but but open up and, and admitted that they were homosexuals. Uh, not a huge number, but I can think of maybe three, three that did, three or four that did. And um, before they did, they had gotten to know me as a doctor and as a person. And they knew that I, you know, treated them fairly. They thought I apparently and that I cared about them. And I've also, I also ended up having one experience with a, a female nurse at a nursing home and also a, a male nurse at a nursing home who oh, were talking about some homosexual related issues. And with the male, actually, he actually presented it in almost a, in, in, in a way to potentially bring up some conflict. And what, what had happened because we had worked together over a period of time. And they knew I cared about them. I, sus- I suspected that the man was as well. I was surprised to hear the woman shared with me. And we had a rapport. And I actually prayed before I said anything. And my presentation with them was very, hopefully, gracious uh, in terms of making sure that I let them know I cared about them. And what I was saying was not a, per- you know, was not a personal attack on them. But then I said, but I, I want to tell you kind of as graciously, I might even view the word lovingly. I'm, I'm not sure. But I can that the Bible talks differently about this, and in both cases, the issue was 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 what was called same sex marriage, which I I prefer to refer to as homosexual marriage because homosexual is not a pejorative term, but it's a more honest description. The the left the secularists have changed the term, so I would prefer to refer to it as homosexual marriage. But regardless, they both listened, and we had an amazing discussion. Now. I, I didn't, I don't know them any longer. I, I'm not working in those areas. I never saw any dramatic change, but I was able to, they didn't go reporting me to anyone and screaming. I was, a, they accepted what I said. And even though they didn't fully agree because of the way I had prayed, in fact, with a man, I had been stu- surprised like by his comment. And I first sort of kind of mumbled something and later prayed, Lord, forgive me. I didn't do a goodness job. Give me another opportunity with him. And the second time around, it did. And, and so it can be done, but with a lot of, you know, a lot of, uh, you've got to really step back and be, you've got to present it sensitively and caringly and let them know. In fact, I think that a woman, I'm excited. I really care about you. You know that. And I ended up actually hugging her. And so if you approach it that way, I found because you have an ongoing relationship and they knew you in a different, you know, they, they knew you beforehand, you can say some things. And I didn't see change, but I, I felt comfortable that I at least shared with them that I did not accept it. And I, I told them why, but I also mentioned that I cared about them as people. Uh, with, with the, in the office earlier on, they weren't as in-depth, but I also was able to kind of try to traverse that ground. So it can be done really carefully, I think, if you have that relationship. So it isn't uncommon. I know when I was growing up, you asked a young man or even a young woman, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a doctor. But do you think today with the culture and the political correctness that exists in our society, 
Would you recommend that unless somebody was very, very strong and confirmed in their faith, they should pursue medical school? Great question as well. I think my quick answer to you would be yes. Having said that, I was raised, as I think you know, in, in, in the Catholic background at home, and I was a, a religious young man, but I even lost my belief in Christianity from Catholicism somewhere in my junior year of, of undergraduate. And I attended a, an all-male Catholic college and, and, and lost my faith there. And for 11 years, I, you know, in all my years of medical training, I was agnostic, semi-neo-pagan almost, I would say. And the Lord came into my life and strengthened my faith and, you know, got me over the, the bumps of understanding that there's creation, not evolution. And he actually, I won't have time and that, that's not the point, but I had a, this is an amazing experience as a third year medical student, literally one or two months after Roe versus Wade. That was January of 1973. And this occurred either February or March when I was on my OBGYN rotation, when I had to do a history, but I was not involved in the abortion itself. I just had to take history on a young woman. And the Lord provided a profound experience. I, I didn't believe there was a personal God at the time. So I can only interpret the experience in a way of, you know, I'm psychology and emotions. But what he was doing was planting this the seed inside me that this is wrong. And when I became a believer, I was profoundly pro-life, even though I never had any personal negative experiences with, you know, with abortion with a girlfriend or or, you know, my later my wife, of course. Um, and so I could see that the Lord could overcome those. But I say that briefly to say that in general, I think you're right. In general, I, I feel better for a young man or woman to be a, a strong, strongly placed and based on her, his or her faith. But in my own life, <laughs> I, the Lord proved that it can be done in a different way. But I, I don't think that's necessarily the best model to follow. Well, I, I think there's something to be said for the fact that you were driven to be a physician and God knew what he was going to do with you, even though you didn't right. know what he was going to do with you. So right. I guess my recommendation, this would be whether somebody's going into law, whether someone's going to pursue sales, where someone's going to have his own business. I think it points to the idea that it's really important to have mentors in these professions that will help you maneuver through the bumps and, and can anticipate what's going on. I know that... Um, that's part of the benefit of having a strong Christian community because, for example, if I knew somebody who was pursuing medicine, there are a number of doctors, you being one of them, that I would make sure this person spoke with and you could answer questions that I would never be able to answer and hopefully establish a relationship. So as somebody was moving forward, because I think the fallacy is thinking, well, it's so ungodly, we shouldn't be there. If that's the way you're going to operate, then there will be no Christians in medicine. Oh, exactly right. And despite the fact that the profession itself started unplugging from its Christian roots many, many years ago, there are still Christian doctors and nurses uh, that you run into, many Christian patients, and actually, even in today's climate, again, as I've gotten older, the Lord has sort of put this on my heart, but my opportunities to witness are greater than I think when I was a younger doctor. And my, hopefully my ability to witness is, is a little more direct and, and profound. And so the Lord is still opening doors in the hospital, you know, with all these, uh, you know, with all the taboos, et cetera, supposedly, that, that there still is room for that. The Holy Spirit just provides much more than, than we, we, might, we might think, including the fact that sometimes you meet Christian pa patients who are in need for consolation or suffering or sharing. And 
I had a most beautiful experience. I, I would like to share briefly because sure. I, I, I may never have it again. Um, it, you know, sometimes in, in a hospice, you even get homeless patients. And so this dear little woman, it was in her sixties, had a cancer dying. She had two daughters, adult daughters. She had, she had been essentially on the streets for five, eight years for some psychiatric emotional problems. But yeah, it was, it was atypical that, although you see this more than you realize that family members still rally around them as they're dying. As he's sort of put on my heart, when I have the opportunity, I try to open it up to the Lord before these patients die. And she responded very positively and it had actually been exposed to the gospel beforehand, maybe even been a believer and with her psychiatric other problems, some drug use and alcohol, sort of her life, you know, got out of control a bit. And she started telling me things that actually brought tears to my eyes. And then some of it, some of it was privately with me. And then we had this beautiful session with her two daughters there, some grandchildren, other friends. And she basically shared to me that the Lord had touched her, you know, a few months before and that had, you know, and, he, and, and her faith in him was renewed and she prayed to him and he gave her peace and she felt so much better now. And the next day she's sharing some of these things with, with the family around. She actually said to me with a smile on her face, this is the best day of my life. Wow. And that was just about before she was to die. And, you know, I wasn't bawling like a child, but the tears were clearly coming down my cheeks. I later learned that a couple of the daughters seemed to be believers as well. But there are, there are some beautiful moments that in the hospital that, you, you know, I, I will never forget that. And she wanted to thank us all for, I don't have to be afraid anymore. I don't, I don't hear the demons anymore. I, I feel at peace. I, I mean, I, I could have bawled like a baby. And so... Right. I, I had the privilege of being involved in this woman's transformation as their family at the end, totally unexpected. And so the Lord encouraged me greatly. And more importantly, this dear darling woman is, is, is with him now. Right. And, you know, and I, I, and I, I assume the impact that her daughters are crying, her grandchildren, you know, and we shared a little later and they were people of generally of faith as well. And, you know, and so the impact on them was great to show you what can happen. You know, in, in so the system is not impenetrable. Absolutely, uh, I want believers in medicine. Absolutely, and in nursing, yes. and nursing especially. And nurses, you know, to me, nurse, the nursing profession is perhaps more foundational than medicine. That's another story. I just well, no, I agree always, with you. Yeah. I have to joke that a lot of people, if they watch television and movies, and they say they want to be a doctor, and I'll always say, no, you actually want to be a nurse because what you see the doctors <laughs> doing. Or what the nurses do. Exactly. I agree. And um, they've always been among my, my favorite group of people. Yeah. They always have been. I married one when I was a 15, 16 year old boy going, being brought into a, what was then an early kind of urgent care center, an amazing nurse come. I had a laceration on my lip from falling off my sled and, and I was bleeding and you know, I never dreamt I'd be a doctor at that point. I was kind of panicky with this red blood all over my face and, you know, mm-hmm. and she had, she calmed me down. She, made me feel better and allowed me to tolerate the procedure. And I remember being feeling transformed, almost transformed, walking on air as I left that, that clinic and saying, wow, that woman, if she, she changed my life, mm-hmm. it, you know, if I could perhaps do something like this. And so nurses now nah, nurses are, are really are wonderful. And I, and, and in a positive light, I mean, I, I've been dealing with nurses in the hospital since 1972. They become friends. I dated many of them. I mean, I've worked with them. I, I know them from all capacities. And, and basically, the beautiful thing I see as an older doctor, I still see the same thread, the same legacy of the caring heart, 
the intelligence, the hard work. The, the hairstyles may differ, the uniforms may differ, but I can close my eyes and, and the same attitudes, the same personalities, the same you know gracious effort, uh, despite the new pressures we're under, uh, still exist you know, 40, 45 years later. Yes. So I still see that, yeah. Right. You know, um, I spent a lot of time in hospitals as a child because when I was in the latter part of my grammar school, my mother suffered a series of strokes and spent some time there. And I remember the respect and appreciation my father had for the nurses and was always very attentive to asking them about their life, etc. He does sound like a great man, by the way, from what you shared. He sounds like a wonderful... Well, he was sort of eccentric and anybody, <laughs> I mean, my father was either people loved him or they didn't, but to just give you an idea of how eccentric he was, he liked things reliable and sturdy. So when it came time to buy a new car, he decided what he wanted to do was buy a checker cab because those were reliable. So we had a black checker cab, which drove my mother crazy. And everybody would say, when I would say my father was a doctor, they'd say, your father's a cab driver. He's driving this cab. And I'd say, look at the license plate. Because in New York at the time, if you were a physician, you had MD on your plate. So I was the girl whose father was a doctor who everybody thought he was a cab driver <laughs> because he drove I, a checker I, I admire him even more now, Andy. I admire him even more. That's, that's a great story. <laughs> yeah, it is. Okay, so how do you think in the last year and a half, COVID, masking, vaccinations, pro or con has affected the medical profession? I think that there's been a great emotional, psychological, and I even think spiritual, even though they may not view it that way, pressure on doctors and even nurses, but that has caused some of them to not and I, I, if it's probably not a role, so I won't go too much into it. I'm, I'm very willing to give my opinion on the vaccine, which I think is not a good thing to take and harmful, but I won't go with that necessarily. But the point is, I think that pressure, and I think personally, I think this pressure was, has been designed by powers to be, have, have broken a lot of them and have made them more fearful and have also not made them look at this quote unquote vaccine, which isn't really a traditional vaccine. Again, I won't go into that too much of that. I'm saddened by a lot of my good colleagues who I know are not bad individuals and not looking at it rationally of how the perspective of a doctor in terms of understanding why this could be dangerous and why uh, you shouldn't be more patient on, on looking at the results. And it's hard to understand unless you've been there. The Lord protected me because I, although I was working in the hospital, most of the time, I mean, there was COVID around me, so to speak, but I only had to interact in the room with perhaps two patients who turned out to be COVID positive. You know, I had to go through that arduous procedure of, of gowning, ungowning, putting the proper mask, putting it the right way, all these techniques, take off your gloves first, this way, that way, that way. I mean, half an hour each to 45 minutes just to prep and get in. And, and as a hospice doctor, I don't have a volume of patients. That's, you know, you have a lot to spend more time. So many poor physicians and nurses are seeing dozens of patients every day and are going through this over and over and over again. And it does wear on you. It wears on you. So I think that's why so many of them have accepted it. The vaccine have not questioned it. And it's difficult when you feel, when you see someone that understands the dangers 
And as your eyes connect, it's almost like making a connection with someone who really knows the truth. I, I'm almost like finding someone in the dark. It comes in different ways. And when you actually try to have even a rational decision, a calm decision, not a confrontational decision with a doctor about it, you, you can't understand why they're not willing to give your view more credibility. So I, I think it's been, you know, it's, it's, I'm saddened by it. It's, you know, it's been, it's been, it's been very, very disturbing to see that. So it's not, not, not been a good, not been a good thing. Yeah. I think for a lot of people where medicine used to be, at least I remember it now, whether or not people a lot younger than I even had this experience, you felt like you were the patient and you were being treated but with health departments and different counties having different rules and you have to mask or you don't have to mask, it begins to feel a little bit like off the rack shopping rather right. than something that's tailored to you. And it has an impersonal air that you can have 10 people, the same gender, the same age, but they would have different needs and what would be right for one wouldn't be right for another but that's not the mindset. It's like everybody has to do this and it poses real problems for people who have breathing issues and, and things like that. All right. I guess I was focusing more upon the hospital per se during the, during the toughest time. You're, 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 at, you're raising some great questions that expanding it more in terms of the outpatient and looking at, yeah. And, and, I, and I think because especially hospital-based doctors, we saw some very, very, very sick patients. And, and, you know, I understand this question about were the statistics correct, but we were seeing a lot of patients. And again, I, I don't even realize that the doctors had, had stepped back enough to question the validity of the testing. So were these all COVID? Everybody believed they were. That was the problem. And were some of them influenza, you know, as it turned out and other factors, that was that that's the most intense in the office. It still is to some degree, but I think the, the pace and the pressure would make, makes a lot of doctors just react in a, in a, in a way that they'll, they do, they'll just accept mandates and decisions that they normally would. Now, having said that, there's also some amazing doctors who don't. And, you know, I, uh, and so that's been, that's been good as well. I, I think the stress and strain has broken a lot of them, whether they, they know it or not. And, and to be on that other end, you may not realize how difficult it is. And, and, and even, for example, the hospital-based doctors, they were all starting wearing scrubs. And they come home and they would have to, that many of them wouldn't if, wouldn't bring their clothes in the home. They'd, they'd take them off, you know, in a special little side closet and, 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 and rush and take a shower right away and wash their clothes, you know, and not knowing what they would bring into the house at first. I mean, and that, the pressure of that, you know, it may, for many months in the beginning, I'm going back to the worst, worst months, I think, you know, last March, April, May, June, things of that sort. And so... And I think after a while, the questions started coming up and they were valid. But some of these doctors had been so much under the pressure that they weren't, they still weren't seeing it properly. No, it's interesting. As a hospice doctor, a lot of people might think, wow, that must be really hard dealing with death. But my guess is because you're a Christian, you recognize that this is a very, very important time to be able to talk to someone. And so the whole idea of death is in the cards for all of us. It's not like we're going to escape it. That if we're talking about illness and we're dealing with people's fear, fear of death and things like that, it gives us an opportunity to really examine what's important in life and where 
where our spiritual priorities are. You're, you're exactly correct. And, and it's been very, very satisfying to me, more than I might have known. I mean, I, the Lord, I think, transitioned me into this point at the end of my career. I wasn't opposed to it. I assumed it would be satisfying. But it also came in, in a time in which I was making a transition. It was a good position. I never realized, but the Lord did. You know how very satisfying it would be, and I also will say to individuals they ask me about it that I don't think I would have been able to be as comfortable doing it as a young physician. And I think there's two factors there. One is the fact that I think my many many years of experience has really helped me understand what they go through, and you know also secondly, hopefully the maturing of my faith, and that helps a lot because. I have more opportunity to witness. I can start gently opening up and going as far as a patient will allow me. And really, when you're at that doorstep, they will often allow you to go more than you might expect. On the other hand, some of them are in a coma. And so when I get quiet moments with them in the room, not knowing what they can hear or can't hear, I will still try to give a a little thumbnail sketch of the gospel and, and respond that way. And then also on the other end of it, as satisfying, it's helping the family. Helping the family. You know, and, and, and often they are more receptive to spiritual truths and hopefully, you know, the, the, the Christian gospel. And I've been able to say some things, you know, it's, it's uh, about, you know, mentioning Jesus per se. If you, when you have a rapport with the patients, you start off graciously and gently and, you know, you're almost like asking their permission and they'll let you go farther and they hear things. And even if they're not a Christian family per se, but, they, you can often go much farther than you would ever expect in your discussion. And if it is done respectfully, they'll respect what you say. And, you know, I'm not sure what seeds may or may not be planned. And then there's the great joy of when you have patients who do share your faith, you can give them, you know, e- even more encouragement. And, and there's been some cases where I do believe there's been acceptance of Jesus sort of at the deathbed. And I can remember a couple of them. And, you know, one was uh, amazingly gratifying. I mean, this is a, this, this was a dear lady who came from a nominal Jewish background from Europe. And as I got to know her, she, she was in a hospice for seven, eight days and, and before she passed. And the first few days, she was very alert. And I would have time with her in the evening. And we'd sit and talk, and we should be very open to talk about things. And I, and I would open up the door spiritually, and she would let me talk about Jesus. And I later learned, I later learned that she, when she was young in, oh, one of the Baltic states, she was ethnically Jewish, but one of the Baltic states, like, I don't think it was Lithuania, I think it was Latvia, I think it was Latvia. She, she had had a, a, a Protestant Christian girlfriend, and she had gone to her church, this is when she was 12, 13, 14 years old. She had gone to her church a few times, and she had liked it, and so, you know, then nothing ever had transmitted, she had gotten married, the marriage didn't work out, husband divorced her many years ago, she had two wonderful adult children, and because we had this rapport, this, this is not, you know, the typical case necessarily. And, you know, I was able, she, she, she trusted me. We developed a rapport. I was able to talk about Jesus openly. And as she was on medication and I happened to be there when they were, she was getting very sedated, slipping into sleep from which she never returned because all of her pain from metastatic cancer, she actually said the words. I said, you know, please, um, Larissa, was a variation of her name and remember Jesus, remember Jesus. And literally her last words were remember Jesus. Mm -hmm. I mean, and so I was so moved by that. Now that is not the average, that's not the normal, but you can do all kinds of variations. And I think the Lord used that case to encourage me 
to what can be done. And I've seen some other individuals that sort of nodded their head as best they could, you know. And so when you have the opportunity in hospice, it's it's very gratifying. Um, again, you've got to be you've got to be sensitive. You've got to be aware of you know the timing when is when it's appropriate when it's not. But the Lord will open the door, and and even when there's not uh, necessarily sharing of the gospel, if I, there's also a great um, ability to emotionally encourage patients and just you know help help them from that point of view as well. No, the scripture says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your father in heaven. So if you're known to be a Christian physician, then what you do and how you do it ends up shining God's light, even if you don't always get the opportunity to share the specific words. That's what we have. We can hold on to. And I, pr- I appreciate that. Yeah. And it's, that's, that's very true. So we're coming to the end of our time. I know we spoke at the outset that you have very strong opinions on whether or not people should get the shot and whether or not there are other remedies. But rather than spend time on that, let's talk more generally. How important as a physician and one with strong opinions on these matters, do you think it is for individual people, individual families to do informed research before they go one way or the other? Oh, very, very important. Very important. And, um, and, and there's a lot of data that's available out there as well. I think that'd be a, a great thing for them to do before they make the decision and not just use it and not just respond to peer pressure or or general sensings of things. And, and I also feel, it also sadly, I hear a lot of stories about those who currently don't do that and have regrets right afterwards. I think a recommendation is crucial. So it's interesting. I had an opportunity years ago after having a health crisis of my own to have to make some lifestyle decisions. And I really came to the conclusion that there was a difference between being motivated to do something and being convicted to do something. Motivation to me says, well, there's some good reasons why I might do it. I might gain this or not. But a conviction means it's a deeply held belief. When you couple that with the idea that anything that's not done in faith is sin, according to the scripture, that it would behoove people to really examine it. Doesn't mean that everybody will come up with the same conclusion, but I think it's important to say whatever medical decision you make during these times it should not only be informed, but you should be able to ask yourself the question, by doing this or not doing it, am I obeying God? I think that's, that's correct, very correct, Andrea. And I think, and I have to be, I have to be very, very sensitive you know, about this because I think on some levels there's a spiritual challenge here. And I think that's exactly right. I think especially a Christian should try to look at it from that, from that perspective. I agree. But I, you know, I also want to be there with grace for those because I've had a couple. I actually seem very almost—I won't say repentant, but very regretful—and so, you know, try to support them and make recommendations. Right now, there's no antidote per se, but as I as I try to understand the, the pathophysiology, what may happen in these individuals from the vaccine, some ideas and some of the supplements we have might actually be able to help them, and so I'm. I started talking to a couple of, of, of believers who have been open to it, and, and hopefully they'll take the supplements and that might be a protection. 
You have to remember that the Lord says nothing is impossible with God. So bad decisions, we've all made them. And God doesn't leave us without recourse. Amen. Exactly. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Larry. I always appreciate talking to you. I think because I come from an Italian background, you come from an Italian background, there is a Paisan nature of um, our interactions. And then the fact that uh, there are a lot of things that um, we both share being in the same generation that allows us to see God's benefit with progress, but also to see the benefits of things that might be considered old-fashioned. Thank you, Andriana. And I, you know, I've when I've listened to the podcast in the past, I've always been impressed by your interviewing technique. And thank you for this. You actually, you know, I thought over and mulled and prayed so much about what I would share, but you made it very easy by your very good questions, your insightful questions. So, thank you. Listeners, thank you for sharing your time with us. You can find a very interesting book by Dr. Rush Dooney called Faith and Wellness, and he goes into the biblical foundations of the the, the calling of physicians. And as always, if you have any comments about this or you would like us to cover other topics in the future, you can reach us at outofthequestionpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, please visit calcedon.edu.